Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. I'm here with Matt Offenbacher, co-host of The Year So Far. Matt, how does it feel? I'm here. We're moving. It's happening. Yeah. 2024. Yeah, no, it's been great so far. Hopefully everyone enjoyed the holiday season and you're ready to get back at it. I know I'm ready to get back at it. Again, just when I think you ran out of ideas or I don't have anything to talk about, you throw out some crazy word that I'm going to try and pronounce here. But the topic of the day is what are PFAS, P-F-A-S, which is an acronym and why don't we use them? So first and foremost, I'm going to do my best at pronouncing this polyfluoroalkyl substance or per fluoroalkyl substance. Was I close? Yeah. Okay. For everyone out there, try it yourself. It's a tongue twister. What in the world are they? And then we'll go from there. This has been a big area of some noise. I mean, people like to throw rocks at the oil and gas industry. I think we know that. And these things called forever chemicals are actually in a lot of things. They're chemicals with strong bonds, which means they don't really break down. But there's a lot of this stuff out there, and a lot of people have asked, like, hey, are these being used in the oil field? And I think there's been some very limited use, but, like, we don't use them in mud. And I thought it was worth talking about just to try and, like, clear the record because people – this gets really confused. But, like, the big concern with these things is they don't really break down. There's, like, more than 12,000 different kinds. And the reason these things don't break down is they have this really strong chemical bond. One of the things we use them in, and we'll get into more uses, is, like, Nonstick cookware. What is the idea? Oh. Like your Teflon or what have you, right? Yeah, yeah. The whole idea is like I heat up a pan, I cook, whatever, I scrape on it, the stuff doesn't come off. Well, it's because these chemical bonds are so strong, like fluorine has this very high electronegativity. If you look at your periodic table, if you go over to the right and up, what's the highest up there? Fluorine. Okay. In a chain as a surfactant, it's got the highest kind of delta. So it's very strong bond. And what that means is it takes a lot of energy to put it together, but it also takes a lot of energy to break it down, which means I can cook over my stove and this stuff generally stays on there. As a user of nonstick cookware, I can say it doesn't stick around. And the company that like guarantees that it does, we send them the pan and they keep sending us another one. Really? Like, oh, it drives me nuts. And I don't know if it's just like the fine print, like don't cook for longer than 20 minutes at a hired. I never have ever had a nonstick pan that stays nonstick. The same here. And then That's I'm like, insane. we probably ate that. <laughs> and when you get into this next section, you'll understand that we probably don't want to do that. <laughs> okay. So moving on. <laughs> you know, the big deal is this stuff's persistent, right? That's why we call it forever chemicals. Yeah. But the whole idea is these things were sort of a marvel accidentally discovered in the 30s is like this, wow, nothing sticks to it. It got a bunch of different applications, but like a lot of things there can be unintended consequences. And it's over time been discovered that like a lot of the health issues, I think at one point there was a study where it was like 97% of people had forever chemicals in their blood, oh, like detectable. No surprise. And is it like heavy metal stuff or what? No, is it? it's not heavy metal. It's these surfactants. Oh, okay. But like they're detecting them and studies, the health issues are becoming better understood. And it's become more clear that, yeah, there can be some health issues. Mm. They're kind of vague, like a lot of, yeah. You know, can we attribute it or not? And with studies like this, 
you try and figure out who's been exposed. You don't expose people and find out. Yeah. But anyways, there's clearly concerns about it. And there's already been efforts to phase this stuff out. They said, like, even the blood studies are showing, like, it's declining. But, like, okay. years ago, you saw a bunch. Yeah, I'm it's sure when down. it came out, everyone was like, yahoo. But this stuff wasn't directly regulated per se. So the EPA okay. is doing a lot more. They're doing a lot more to basically discourage voluntary use and ultimately trying to ban them. But I think it's also a bit of a challenge because there's so many different compounds you can make with these things that like you can ban families of chemicals or what have you. But like there are some that it's like, well, now we can't make this really important part of our daily life. And say, okay, well, we exemption. It's complicated. I am not a regulatory expert. But what <laughs> yeah. I can tell you is that the EPA is doing work along with other governmental agencies to absolutely limit and restrict their usage most companies that were manufacturing these things have stopped or have a phase out plan or will say we'll only do it for this particular family of products. Mm. But I mean, these things were everywhere and you mentioned nonstick substances for cooking and that sort of thing. But like those firefighting foams you hear about, a lot of those had PFAS in them, which is why they're trying to get away from those paints, packaging, water repellent. You remember back in the day, like Gore-Tex? Yeah. That was PFAS. It made it waterproof. Ah. So they've had to change materials. There's been a lot publicly discussed about that. Cosmetics, which I think I'd imagine that's been long phased out. <laughs> yeah. um, Non-stick makeup. Electronics, yeah. But you're talking about more than 12,000 substances. So you're thinking of a lot of different uses. Yeah. And this is kind of where we get into the oil field aspect of this. Okay. Our whole thing in the oil field is that like we're pretty cheap, especially when it comes to chemicals. Yeah. PFAS take a lot of energy to make. Because those bonds, like if you want to make something bond together that doesn't want to break down, you put a lot of energy into it. So it takes a lot of energy to break it apart. Forever chemical requires a lot of energy to put those bonds together. Mm -hmm. And that takes money that we don't want to spend. Yeah. So generally speaking, like the kinds of surfactants, which sound very hydrophobic, they could be useful for different things. Like, yeah. They're pretty darn expensive, which limits use in high volume, like on a frack job or as part of a mud component or what have you, right? Immediately, you've got a limiter of cost that would limit feasibility. Right. But then the other thing is there's a lot of off-the-shelf stuff that we have now that's cheaper that works just fine. Talking to our people because guess what? This has been a lot of noise in the oil field where our customers have said, hey, what do you know about this? Have you ever used these? And our CTO said, we have things that work better and these are expensive and I don't really know why you would use them. Right. We've never used them or as far as we know. We don't see a reason to. But that surface tension reduction, maybe you could use it as a flowback additive. Where this came up last time, which was 2021, it was a goofy report. You know, frack focus. It was the idea of chemical disclosure. Okay. So it's chemicals you could use on a frack job. Mm. Right? Doesn't mean you did. They searched for wells since 2012 and they found 1,200 that may have used a PFAS compound. Oh, okay. 1,200 out of like 80,000 wells drilled over that period. Yeah. Actually, probably more than that. I don't know. Sure. But let's just say it's a very small percentage and may have used is not the same thing as used. Mm -hmm. So maybe there was an element like this was in frack chemicals, but this group sends out a report and says, you know, it's like concerned physicians or whatever, but it more or less was like, all you did was get on Google, found could have and sent out a report, and then, of course, they list, you know, oil and gas companies that, and one, at the time, it was EPA approved. 
Like hmm. there weren't any restrictions then. There are now, as I understand it, or I'm not an environmentally regulatory specialist. Yeah. Check with yours. But the fact is it was hardly being used. It wasn't prohibited and it's probably not now. Hmm. I was like, I guess I could see like if it's surfactants. Yeah. You could make an emulsifier out of it. Probably you could do some other things. Yeah, it's feasible, I guess. Yeah. And then I started going through academic literature. So this is where your chat GPT warriors come in, uh, right? Yeah. Chat GPT or some of these large language models, what do they do? They scour the internet for information and they assemble a summary of whatever you're trying to search for. So it makes searching awesome. It helps you write more sensitive emails, whatever. <laughs> but the one thing that you see in a ton of academic literature is... PFAS applications and uses. And someone in a lab at a university will come up with an emulsifier or maybe just as part of their thesis say, this family of surfactants could be used in the oil field yeah. to make an emulsifier. That is a far, far cry from we put it in a tote and use it every day. <laughs> right. But that is if you Google what you're likely to come up with. It's the same thing when you read government reports and they write like a summary about oil field chemicals. They're like, oh, yeah, sometimes like Celestite's used as a weight material in mud. And it's like, I mean, it could be. There's just not really quantities of it around to use as a weight material. And it's like, well, okay, they Googled something and found somebody mentioning it. Mm -hmm. And now they're repeating it. That doesn't make it true, but it does make it searchable. Yeah. I think part of the fire is that a mud company or even a chemical manufacturer at that point will talk about the performance of their product, but they're never going to discuss the chemistry on the internet. Maybe in a patent, yeah. but even a patent doesn't necessarily mean it's being used. It means you've got a concept that you might use. Like you've put all this stuff out there about feasibility without explicitly stating this is what our product is. Yeah. Now, if you start asking your large language model about PFAS in the oil field, it's going to start talking about all this stuff that never happened. But it's going to give you enough. You'd be like, oh, my gosh, the burden of proof is on you to prove to me that you didn't do this. Yeah. That's what's really frustrating about this whole deal is you hear the stories about asbestos being this miracle fiber and everybody accepting it and, you know, and then finding out later it's got these serious health hazards. Like we need to be aware of risks and unintended consequences. But in the case of PFAS, like it never really was an oil field thing in any mainstay, nor was it a good fit. It's not like today our guys are in the lab being like, man, if only I could use PFAS, we would turn drilling performance around. Yeah. But there are a lot of questions about like, okay, how can we help everybody understand? It's hard to explain chemicals to a customer, let alone to the public. Yeah. There's an education aspect of this. There's a frustration where maybe you don't feel like you're being treated fairly because you're sort of responding to an accusation that in my opinion, lacks merit. Mm -hmm. But big picture, it's important to know what these things are. It's important to understand that they're everywhere and that there's a reason to not use them and phase them out. It's important to realize like, I think just as much as if we made a mistake or there was an issue, it's important to make that right. When you didn't do anything wrong, let's try and make that clear too. Like this was never a good fit for us. So thankfully we never got hooked on these things yeah. and used them when other people did. Huh. Hopefully that clears the air. I mean, at the right price, are there any compounds that do make sense that could offer up some lubricity or some fluid loss or, I mean, anything that you think of? I think could, I still don't think better than what we have already. And I think it would be like maybe high temperature applications, going back to strong chemical bonds, things that don't break down. Like we've talked about a lot of times, the most practical thing to do in a high temperature application is like 
let it cook. Just use more of it. Yeah. Let it contribute until it thermally degrades and then add some more as long as it doesn't break down into something nasty. Interesting. And these don't necessarily break down, but once again, it doesn't seem that we would need them. Got it. Well, I'm curious to hear from the audience if you're using them. Whoa. Like, please tell us, let us know. Uh, or if you have any thoughts or ideas around something like this. Again, it's kind of uh, off the beaten path with regards to drilling fluids. But when things get raised or questions get asked, I think it's important for us to talk about them. I know I learn a lot. Hopefully the audience does too. Matt, I'm sure you do a little research beforehand. But nonetheless, man, any thoughts, closing last words? If y'all have thoughts on like, what do we do as an industry mm-hmm. to educate and clarify I think sometimes the oil field has had this mindset, if we just keep quiet about things, whether we're right or wrong, we're not going to have a target on our back. And I think generally that has never worked. But if we can be very clear on where we think we're responsible and do a good job there, and then be very clear on where we're not responsible Mm -hmm. and do a good job of explaining that, I think that helps everybody. Yeah. But there's always risk of... It always feels like you're taking a risk by stepping out. Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. Well, if, again, if the audience has any thoughts or wants to reach out and talk more about it, hit us up on LinkedIn or you can reach us at the Flowline Podcast at AESFluids.com. Appreciate all the listening. Wishing everyone a wonderful 2024. Make sure you connect with us at the AES Fluids LinkedIn page. We continue to put a lot of great content out there. Check us out on YouTube as well. You can search up AES Fluids. We've got a channel with a bunch of good technical information on that. And yeah, be on the lookout. If you're going to be attending different events, AEDE Fluids Conference, or just we'll be letting everyone know about any papers that we publish. Again, just Matt and his team are doing a phenomenal job of doing research and developing and educating. That's what it's all about. And so with that being said, everyone, take care. We'll see you next week. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.